Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast, to join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. Head to xyadvisor.com. Guys, uh, Ray Drums here from XY Advisor. Today we've got Paul Barrett from Absolute Wealth Advisors. I'm, I'm delighted to have Paul on, and he's somebody who I've, I've known professionally for, for a number of years now, a uh, business partner of a, a friend of the family, uh, Dean, who I'm, I'm sure a lot of you would, would know as well. Paul, Paul's reputation in the industry is really being in a, in a slightly different space to a lot of us, where it's specializing in that that high net wealth and, and affluence space, really being the custodian for, for wealth and intergenerational family uh, planning. So a, a big reason why I asked Paul to come on today was to share some of his learnings because if you're anything like me as a young advisor, I would absolutely uh, start to get a bit shaky sitting down with somebody who had a little bit more money than me and or a lot more money than me, especially in those days, uh, and, and ask them to, to listen to a, a, young, a young punk. So... Uh, with that, Paul, thank you for, for coming on. No problem. How, uh, how have you sort of found the, the transition in the most recent of times with uh, our dear friend Corona? Look, uh, I suppose as anybody who knows of Dean would or might remember is we kind of experimented with this working from home uh, a few years ago when Dean went and lived and worked in London. So... Uh, and he was over there for two and a half years. He maintained all of his clients and we kept the business going. So in some ways, we'd made some steps forward in that area anyway. And in another way, we were just lucky that we had ramped up our offshore team in the previous 12 months to COVID hitting anyway. So effectively, we've now only got three domestic staff, Dean, Stella and I, who are all the principals of the business, and we've got six offshore staff. Um, all of whom are working from home. Um, and Dean Stella and I had been working from home one or two days a week before COVID anyway. And the offshore team have all been moved to work from home, so they're really happy about that. So technologically, we were already set up for it. Um, we had to change a few of our practices just to make sure that we were staying connected. So we now have a team huddle every morning. Uh, we've got our offshore team broken up into specialists. We have a meeting with them, each specialist, once a week with all of the owners involved. Uh, plus, we have a team meeting and a leadership team meeting. So there's a little bit more effort in making sure we all stay connected um, and particularly making sure that everybody's mental health is fine because, um, you know, in isolation, uh, it's easy to kind of go radio silent and, and suffer in silence. So other than that, though, all of our clients have transitioned to Zoom meetings and so uh, no operational deficits, no client deficits, no loss of clients, uh, and we're still growing. Uh, so all good, really. That's great to hear. I, I'm interested in, in how the response has been with the clients because I suppose I have this stereotype or, or character in my mind of a of the affluent family in the eastern suburbs who are very much wanting that physical touch and, and maybe they're a little older so not always the most tech savvy uh, and just just want to sit down with their with their advisor and head into town so how, how has it been on, on the client end or how have you found that uh, to be honest and we we well my client base is typically 50 plus mostly probably sub 70. So really in that 50 to 70 range, mostly. And all of them are reasonably well tech savvy. I mean, you know, we all know the, the 
the take up of Facebook in, with the grey nomads. And uh, so it hasn't really been a problem at all. One or two clients who do struggle, we have phone calls um, with them and they're pretty comfortable with that. Clearly, you can still communicate via emails. Um, and we still have our office in the city. And so if we need to, we would have a meeting with a client. So I think I've got my first face-to-face meeting with a client booked in 1st of August. Okay, a big so, meeting room. You've got a, you've got a decent-sized meeting room. For the, <laughs> what is it? Is one, one person every, uh, every four square metres? Is that the... I don't know what the rules are. I think it's two square metres now. Two square metres? Okay, cool. We're getting closer and closer. I, I was listening earlier. There's a... There's a rugby union match on in Brisbane in, uh, in Suncorp and they're allowed, I think, 25,000 in the stadium. So, uh, mm-hmm. touch wood. Um, Don't forget that's Brisbane, though. That's Queensland. Everywhere else is a little bit more chilled. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Brizzy, Brizzy, they, they definitely run on a, on a slightly different clock, that's for sure. Um, so, Paul, tell me, we, we have a lot of younger advisors who listen to this and I sort of reflect back to when I was an advisor at AMP and I remember the minimum amount that we were actually allowed to charge. It was like the lowest amount was $440. And I remember being thinking to myself like, right, how am I going to convince somebody to pay me $440? And I, I remember going to a couple of meetings looking at superannuation balances and uh, you know, often these guys were what they would call orphan clients, which is terrible terminology, but they had no advisor on them and uh, have balances of 40, 60, 80, 100 grand. Uh, I, was, I was in my very early 20s and, and didn't have anywhere near, near that sort of money in my super funds. So one of the things that I really struggled with initially was, was developing the right or the authority internally to say, no, it's okay for me to talk to somebody and there's a there's a reason why they should pay me $440 for some advice. Um, I suppose the question would be, or, or I'm interested in your thoughts on if, if, you, if you're a young advisor starting today and you're interested in, in playing in spaces that are a bit beyond where you're at personally, I suppose what insights would you, would you like to share there? Uh, and it's, it's a great question because we experienced this in our practice as well. So I'm in my, well, when we started the practice, I was about 40 and Dean was maybe only 26. Um, and there was some, uh, in the practice that we had, there were clients with some moderate sums of money, six to 10 mil. And uh, Dean needed to, um, he, he was feeling the same way not only in with the client space, but also in our business, because when we started, he was my associate, but when we joined the business, we, we became business partners, equal partners. And there was a little bit of a mindset shift, that both, mindset shift that both of us had to have about treating, realizing that he was equal, um, him on his side and my side. Um, but also in the client space, we had discussions. So A, we got some coaching around it. We didn't do this on our own. Uh, and but the on the client side of things, it was actually all about Dean feeling confident that he knew more about what he was talking about than what the client knew. Um, it's not about age; it's about your knowledge and your value. And so, as soon as he took made that mindset shift that it's about knowledge um, and value, not age, you know, all the shackles were off. And and he's a very confident speaker. He's a very knowledgeable speaker. And so. Um, he could go into that room and prove his value. So my advice there is know your value, which is your knowledge around that stuff, and be confident of it. Know how to communicate it. Um, And 
remember that you don't have to win every meeting. Like you can fail sometimes and it's still okay because you won't, you won't succeed with everybody, but you should be confident of what you know, present it confidently. And if the other side understand it and value it, then you'll move forward with, um, without any complications. That's, yeah, no, that's great. And I, but before we actually press record, we we're talking about this idea that it's totally okay to not know everything in the meeting. And uh, I, I know uh, working from my trace today is where we would work with those those sort of mass affluent clients. And I was an, an associate to to Mark Nagel. Shout out, Mark, if you're listening. Uh, there, I, I was always amazed by actually how much how little the other person knew about money, and there was no correlation that people with money understood the money. It's like, okay, I'm a really good architect. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that I understand what a non-concessional contribution is. Uh, and it did, didn't take very long. You know, you start to have these little wins and uh, introduce questions and ideas in meetings and suddenly you, the number is almost irrelevant. It, it, you really boil things down to, to person to person and, and that, that's real, real level up. On, on that question about not needing to know everything in the meeting, yeah. um, an important mindset shift that we made very early on in our business is that we were in the business of service. Our product was knowledge about finance, but the way, the more important thing that determined how the client felt about their experience was us, was about our service. And so when you remember that that's your service, you don't have to have the answer in the meeting. Your job is to go away and get it and present it back quickly. And that's the service. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I, I, I know where, where it is. And I'll, yeah, and I'll get it back to you within 24 hours or 48 hours. Um, we, we had an interesting example of that just recently because Dean's been transitioning out of the business into the, the wealth network side and the coaching side. We've actually had to transfer some of his clients either back to me or to me for the first time. And, and towards Stella. And uh, we use um, David Dugan from Abundance uh, Global, who Ben's used and others have used as well. And we were talking to him about this. And he was saying that what we needed to do, whoever was the receiving advisor, needed to come up with a nugget of that added value and also a promise of something they were going to get back to the client with. And that helped the transition because now the client was already going, okay, he's told me something that I haven't heard before and he's going to come back to me with something. So now I'm attached to him for something that I want. The positioning, but also the added value and the, and the promise, if you were looking to do that as your meeting prep before you go in. And Dean and I would talk about what was going to be my nugget and what was going to be my promise before we go into the meeting. That's, yeah, I love, I love that because then then the new person is the owner of the idea or the strategy and that sets the framework for the future conversation. By the time you're on the other side of that strategy, relationships set. Mm-hmm. What has it been in conversations with, with the affluent? Like if you've got, and I don't mean to sound this flippantly, but if you've got like a lot of money and, and arguably more, more than you would need to pay the bills day to day, what are, how you, how you find, are people freaking out at the moment and seeing opportunity? Are they buying gold bricks? <laughs> How's, how's, it, how's it been going in the meetings? The, I think the really important thing to remember, and this is good for the younger advisors who are coming into this space and wanting to have some confidence, is that the majority of people with money are just normal people. And that one of the really interesting things that we've realised over time through experience is 
is lots of people who have money are very unsophisticated with their money. So one of the things that we target, particularly because it suits our business model and the way we think, is that our, our kind of best fun, most fun clients, the ones where we think we add the most value is to people who have money who aren't financially sophisticated. And that, that happens all the time, either through um, divorce or inheritance, where people have had a life of a normal life and suddenly receive money. And thinking about managing money and, uh, and the responsibilities of money has never been in their world before. Um, and they are just very ordinary people. So I think there's a little bit of a stereotype that people with money are financially savvy and demanding, and that's not my experience. People with money can be very normal people, can have very little knowledge about it, and need to be coached just like any other client um, through the process. And they are very coachable. I have, I have got some financially very sophisticated clients, and it's, you know, it is an advantage that my background means that I can speak quite technically about investing. Um, but that's probably only maybe 20% or less of our clients. The rest of them are just mums and dads who, um, who have money, who never made the money, who are more worried about losing the money and being taken advantage of than they are about getting into the latest sexy investment and making lots of money. So with the majority of our clients, we have very simple investment strategies which we coach them to maintain through these times. Um, and that coaching starts on day one. We are always preparing our clients for that this is going to happen. We're not selling them on the fact that we are the best investment manager in the world and we're going to ride out all of the things, they're going to make lots of money always, blah, blah, blah. We're saying that we're creating portfolios that are going to ride out the market events that are going to come, that have always come, that will come but that we're setting up the portfolio now to handle that situation then. And so in every financial crisis that we've ever been through, which is all the way back to the G, uh, well, let's, let's say post the GFC, um, every market correction, we have never had a client ring up worried. Amazing. Um, so yeah, the coaching happens early um, and then it's reinforced during those times and our clients are all stable, happy and, and, the, and the rich people haven't, haven't experienced it any different than the poor people. <laughs> They're all the same. It's interesting you say that, and I. It was one of the realizations I came to. It's it's the the those that are and and just to talk in blunt terms, those that are the the middle the middle of the the rung from a class perspective. They're, they're the ones who are most focused on getting ahead and the next best win and the bitcoins and. But actually, the strata above that, the affluent, and this is at the level that you it sounds like you're talking. Or, and, and my experience, my limited experience with that is the conversation flips on its head completely. It's, it's a case of capital preservation over making the money grow. It's like, I don't care about the growth because I've got enough. I just don't want to lose the bloody thing. Mm. And look, I, I'll give you a, a couple of examples which will um, put that into perspective. And the first thing is the market that I play in is really the um, 5 to $50 million range. So I'm not in the 100 million plus range. That's not my market. Those people will typically go to a family office. Is that the but difference between 50 and 100 million, a need for a family office? Plenty of people with 100 million wouldn't go to a family office, but the costs of a family office are pretty high. 
Um, the service proposition of family offices is very high um, and can be over the top and overwhelming for people who have this kind of 10 to $50 million range. And a, and a family office, just to clarify, because I actually never fully understood it, is, 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 it, is it basically a, a personalised advisory office where you're just looking up to that person? Look, my understanding of, of the family office is that um, the, the, the good ones, everything's in, in the one shop. So you've got your accountant, your bookkeeper, your administration, your investment advisor, your lawyer is all in one place. And there's a, a relationship manager there who is coordinating all of these various services to do everything for you. Um, but probably what differentiates it is they would have their own internal investment team and they are looking at private bespoke deals, whether it's property or business, and they're funneling their investors into um, private and public investments, whereas I don't play in the, in the private investment space. Sorry, yeah, I, I did cut you off. I was interested in the family office thing. So you, you, you were saying uh, before I really cut you off, uh, between five and 20 is, is your soft spot? No, five to 50. Five, five to fifty. Sorry, yeah. And uh, what, what, what? Are, let's talk, talk, talk to me a little bit more about about that and, and why that's your space. And so the, the reason it's my space is that um, partially it comes through dint of circumstance. Once you've been in business for a while um, and you you network and you deliver your service and you refine what you do, you end up with a client base. And through dint of circumstance, I ended up with clients in this range. It's only really now that I'm proactively going out and trying to find more of them. Um, what I find happens in the five to 50 million space, and, and we, we have two service offerings in the business. One is what we call the private wealth pathway. And the private wealth pathway is for people who have enough money for themselves and their retirement. And their mindset is that they will keep control of that money they will manage it until they die. They'll plan about what happens when they die, but they'll really just distribute the money to their children at that time and the money's gone. And really, if you've got sort of two children and $10 million, they each get $5 million each, that's probably the right thing to do. Once you get into the bigger amounts of money, there's the concept of this money is more than I and my children need. For, to, to live a comfortable lifestyle. And so there's then the thought process, and this is a really important mindset shift, is that this money is not mine, it's ours. It's the family's money. And when you make that mindset shift, you're making decisions differently. You're making decisions about, well, who comes, who, what do we tell the family about the money? How do we tell the money about the family? Um, how do we make decisions about this money as a family? Um, who are we going to get to help us? Because you want, you know, typically what we do is we try and f uh, form an advisory board with these families where you've got the accountant, the lawyer and, and the advisor, and we are working proactively together and we meet quarterly to deliver information to help them make their decisions, but also help them make the decisions. And so the reason it's in that five to $10 million space is that in that journey somewhere, there is the potential mindset shift between private wealth pathway, which is it's mine and I hand on whatever's left at the end, to what we call the family wealth pathway, which is this is ours and we're now starting the journey of setting up the infrastructure and the decision-making processes so this money lasts 
through multiple generations. And it's no, it's nobody's individually. It's ours as a, as a family. It sounds, it sounds like it, it's, it's lending a, a bit from the, the Chinese hundred year business plan thing, right? It's not, not about tomorrow necessarily, but actually a, a few tomorrows away. Uh, and you, you know, you, there's plenty of good books around it. Um, uh, Family Wealth is a really good book. If anybody wants to get up to speed, I can, I can recommend this book. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a well-written introduction to this mindset shift about intergenerational wealth preservation. Um, and one of the really interesting concepts in there, which we all know, but it's always nice when you read it in a, in a way that packages the idea that resonates, is that um, intergenerational wealth management is about human capital management, at least as much, if not more, than about the financial management because families fall apart because of relationships, not because there's not enough money. And, and is that, are you talking kids and that sort of stuff? Or? Oh, absolutely. Well, basically what, we do, what we're, we're thinking about is, and this is, you know, getting into a little bit of the detail about family wealth money, is when you're starting to make joint decisions, you need frameworks to make consistent joint decisions. Um, and so one of the first things we do is we uh, determine a set of family values so that we, and the purpose of family values is that when you go to make a decision, you weigh up that decision against your family values. And is this decision in accordance with my values or is it breaching one of my values, in which case I've got to think about whether that's really the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have a family mission statement. So what, what is this money for? And that's where you really encapsulate that this money is not for any of us individually. This money is for our children and our children's children and to affect the generations. That's the mission statement thing. Um, so then we have a list about the things that we do and don't do. Um, we do pay for education, uh, but we don't pay for drug habits or we pay for, you know, um, we make a contribution towards a first home, but we don't buy a million, multi-million dollar mansion. So we'll give you the first leg up, but we're not going to take away from you your need to succeed at your level because not everybody in the family wants the same things. Some people in the family might want to be a nurse and some might want to be a lawyer or a doctor. Um, They should be given the same start and they should be supported to live their best life, but not all the lives are the same. So it's about treating everybody fairly and equally, but not the same. Amazing. And uh, just to get it slightly technical, do you find that the, the most common vehicle there is a testamentary trust? No. <laughs> um, so testamentary trusts are great for the, um, the private wealth pathway because what you're doing with a testamentary trust is you're splitting money into testamentary trusts for the children, whereas um, intergenerational wealth money, that nobody owns anything privately. Wills are almost defunct because the money is already sitting in a, in a family trust before death. And so then it's how do we transfer legal control of the family trust, but more importantly, how do we educate and um, support people in the family to step up to those roles in the way so that they make decisions consistent through generations? It's about regenerating the leadership. Right. So you're, you're, it's, really, it's really being sharp on, on the trust deed and talking to the rules of the trust, and in these conditions we, we release or we make a distribution, and these other conditions we do not. 
Um, yes, it is, um, but you don't want to put too much in a in a legal document of that sense because then when you want to go and change the trust deed or something happens, that doesn't work. It's more about having a family constitution okay. which sits above the trust deed which says this is how we operate as a family um, and so then the operation of the family is in accordance with the constitution. The, the trust deed is just the legal mechanism which we use at that technical level. You don't want to be fiddling with trust deeds. Yeah, fair enough. Do you, do you have a, uh, this is a question without notice, do you have a, a preferred appointor? Uh, and for those that don't necessarily play in this space, an appointor is like the most important person in a trust that no one really thinks about. Everyone's sort of thinking trustee or beneficiary, but the appointor is the person who actually controls the roles uh, and it, 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 I'm amazed at how many trust deeds and how many setups I've seen. When I set up my trust, the appointor by default was, a, was, a, was my colleague and I had to sort of say, no, no, I don't want that. Um, do, you, do you have, a, do you have a, like a preference there or, or an approach you'd like to go to? Look, uh, it, and this is, a, this is a really important point, that um, you've got to be very careful about rules of thumbs and generalisations in these situations because they are all different. Um, the... the the important thing is to have a discussion about it and to choose the right person in the right circumstance. Um, and so, you know, you, you can, I've seen circumstances where the trust is controlled by a corporate trustee, which we know, which is therefore controlled by the, by the uh, directors, which is really good because you can change directors at any time without changing the trustee, etc. Yep. And that the trustee has been the appointor. So the directors of the trustee company. So as you change the directors, you also change the appointor. That can work in certain circumstances. Um, certainly what you don't generally want is the at-risk person, yeah. the appointor, but you've got to be very careful in order to, to not have the at-risk person. And remember, the at-risk person is generally the most dominant person in the family making decisions then whoever they, in order to protect them, the power's got to go somewhere else and then you've got to make sure that that decision is the right decision. So um, is, it, is it rare then that in, the, in this sort of setup that the, the more powerful person in the family unit would be the director of that corporate trustee? Traditionally, in yeah. scenario where like, let's, let's say you've got a retail store and the, the fellow gets sued and then suddenly you've got this trust deed set up or the trust is set up and so, oh, but hang on, you're the appointer and the beneficiary and the trustee. Actually, mate, I think it's your money. <laughs> there's absolutely, and there's case law around that. Um, and you definitely don't want the person, the appointor, the trustee and the beneficiary to be the same person. It's, Asset protection comes because you don't have an asset. But if you control an asset, it's considered yours. So, and that's where this, there's no rules of thumb because it's a very delicate situation. How do we protect the at-risk person who is generally the person with the most knowledge and is the, the leader in the family? How do you protect them without, taking, without shifting the power to somewhere which could be abused later? That's the issue. So... It is, uh, it is a case-by-case -case situation, the point being that it's very important to have the discussion and get the decision right. It's not something to be skipped over.
better better you than me to have a conversation with a, I, I again I simplify things to like a character but like a really ego driven fella responsible for call it 10 million dollars like i need to protect the world and say yeah fantastic it's not your money you have no control go over there and it's like no mate that's not what i meant <laughs> so uh, I think one of the important things here also is to remember that uh, where, uh, what your skill set is and, and not, to, not to stray too far outside your boundaries. And so that's why these decisions for me are always made with the accountant and the lawyer in the room. So it's a joint decision or, or it's a joint advisory conversation about what the risks and benefits are and you get the different perspectives, the accounting perspective, the legal perspective, Generally, what financial planners do is we bring the softer side as well as the investment side. And my experience is that even very smart, egotistical people take advice from, uh, you know, when, when the advice is overwhelming. Um, and, but it's also a, an issue about, you know, when a client raises a concern, the issue is not to bully them into a decision. The issue is to sit with that concern and understand it and unpack it as best as you can so that you can then look at the component parts of the concern and try to come up with um, a solution that addresses the concerns whilst also achieving what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I think for advisors, the, the notion of being a facilitator in a lot of places is a really important one. I often say to my clients, if I, don't, I can't give you tax advice, but I, I am fluent in that language. So, you know, I, I can speak French to a French speaker over there and then at least you know that we're working together and we can facilitate a conversation. And the client's like, yep, that makes sense. Happy days. And I can certainly see how that would, would hit home here. Yep. So if you're a young advisor and, and you, you plug into a business, let's say you just finished your professional year and you're interested in starting to talk to to these people, is there? Do you find that there's a, a, a an industry that they naturally go they're in, or a, a platform they're on, or is there? What? How do you? Where do you find success with these introductions? How, how, so, just reframing the question: Are you saying how do I find my clients? Yeah, where where are they? A couple of things there is that um, uh, it's really important to do research into your target client. And so there are multiple ways you can do that. You can, you can just spend hours Googling on the internet, looking up your competitors, um, uh, playing in spaces where you think these people might be and doing research that way. A and or you can go to some, some very in-depth research providers like Core Data who do research on high net wealth individuals um, and you can buy that research and become very knowledgeable. It's really uh, important to research offshore um, to see what countries like the US and the UK are doing in this space. Um, and there's amazing how much information there is out there. The challenge is how much time do you spend on it? Yeah. Um, but once you've done that research, you will pretty much, you'll learn where your clients reside. Um, so in this high net wealth space, very few of them, and I've done research with my clients um, as well as you know, reading external research, very few of them are going to buy me because they find me on the internet and come to me. It's not really how high net wealth people work. You're not um, door knocking in Point Piper, are you? <laughs> I, I haven't. I haven't yet, but it's, it's not a bad idea. Um, so really for us, where our clients live and, and who they take advice from are their existing advisors. So our marketing efforts to the high net wealth space is to lawyers and accountants. Um, and 
that brings into a, a, an important part about how do you set up effective partnerships and referral relationships. Um, and again, Abundance Global have some good, uh, you know, if you're into coaching and you're, they have some good advice on how to set up what they call partnerships. We would probably call referral relationships, but they're more partnerships. And the really interesting, the important thing to focus on there is mutual value. It's not about you becoming a leech on someone else and sucking uh, their clients off them and not giving anything back. You've got, it's got to be mutually beneficial in order for it to be sustainable. And that's where for us it's about talking to how we facilitate and create value for the accountants and lawyers with their high-value clients. Um, and it's about creating advisory boards and it's about bringing them in to more of the decision-making process um, a, so that because that's better for our clients and the clients won't always know who they should ask to get the right answer. And so for us, it's making sure that um, our accountants and lawyers are heavily involved. That's good for them because they retain the client. They want the client to be sticky and always go to them um, for the advice. And if we're directing the client there in the right circumstances, that's great for them. Um, we all ca also can, you know, um, for lawyers and accountants, they're always looking for content to deliver either through their newsletter or through, um, you know, lunchtime events or evening events. Um, and it's not always, they don't want it always to be technical. They want it to be something that resonates. So if you can talk about topics around your client base, so for us, it might be around um, value-based decision-making or um, uh, it might be around, you know, philanthropy, um, uh, it might be around ethical investing or so topics that these wealthy people are interested in, which you know through your research or through your experience, if you can develop content around there that you can give out to either through social media or to the accountants or to the lawyers to help them promote themselves in that space because you want them to be more successful to attract more clients because that's going to be more for you. So it's very much about the mutual benefit of your partnerships and for the wealthy those partnerships, the accountants and the lawyers are typically the, the, the gateway. That's great advice. I, a couple of years ago, I went on this campaign uh, where I made a point of speaking to all of my existing clients, accountants, because I was interested in developing these relationships and cold calling isn't necessarily the funnest way of, of doing it. But it, it, was, it, it was pointed out to me that actually every single one of my clients has an accountant and most of them will have a lawyer who either did at least the conveyancing on their place, but hopefully the estate plan. Uh, and these, these guys uh, were interested uh, to speak. There's, there's a, for accountants specifically, for anyone who's interested in playing this in this space, the accounting framework around how they could talk to their clients has changed dramatically in the recent past. So there's a, there's, it's even more interesting or attractive for an accountant to make a relationship with an advisor because they've been limited in, in some of the things that they can say, which an advisor can. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, I, I haven't done this for a year, for about a year or so, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of accountants are finding it quite frustrating with their new uh, compliance regime around them and, and your potential solution there. So with the client's permission, jump on the phone, introduce yourself to the accountant. You know, as Paul said earlier, uh, if you can come up with a new idea or, or some 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 strategy or something interesting to talk to the client about, then, then maybe they're interested in having a coffee with you as well. And to take that idea to its extreme, um, you know, Dean, uh, through one of his clients, met an accounting, met their accountant, um, and he kind of got on well with them. 
And through the developing of that relationship, we've actually started a 50-50 partnership with that accounting firm where we provide all of the superannuation advice to the clients. So we get introduced to the clients around superannuation time. We, the idea is that the, that's, the, that's the entree to a full advice service, but we, you know, we go and sit in their office once a week. We network with, the, you know, we meet with the partners. We work out who they're seeing. Um, and that business has been going for about 12 months and it's growing really well. So you can act that idea of having starting a conversation with an accountant because we had a client has led to a, a whole business with that accounting firm. You only need one of those, right, to make it all worthwhile, right? Yeah. Why you, stop at one? Why, exactly. Why stop at one, for sure. Um, you, you mentioned an interesting uh, uh, thing there, which I was interested in talking to you about, and it, it, I don't know where it sits in, in the service proposition, but I, I was interested in, in, in my mind, when people have money uh, and their immediate needs are, are looked after, the, the, next, the next cab off the rank is philanthropy and, and giving back. Uh, I'm interested in, in whether or not that is a, almost like a default graduation that you see a lot of guys going to or if it's actually a less of a focus and it's more intergenerational family stuff or, or, or if it's a, a focus. There is this um, spectrum of giving and it, it doesn't have to be only rich people, you know. Um, people with modest amounts of money can also think philanthropically and you need to have structures in place. So, for example, I talk to them all about their philanthropic giving every year before tax time and they make decisions and make payments, as opposed to having a philanthropic trust, which is a different story again, which, again, you do that, but it's, it's courses for courses. Makes sense. I'm, I'm super interested in understanding, finally, what a philanthropic trust is. Uh, okay. Uh, the easiest way to think about it is it's just like an SMSF. Um, it's, a, it's a trust with specific rules around it, which enable it to access tax deductions as long as you operate within the rules. So just like we make contributions to an SMSF, you can make a donation to a philanthropic trust. That puts the capital in the trust and that donation is fully tax deductible. Okay, so you get a 100% tax deduction for the money that you take out of your personal wealth and put into the philanthropic trust. But you no longer own that money. That's not yours. In order to comply with the laws, which means that the income earned on, in that trust is tax-free, you have to comply with the laws. And the, and the most basic law is that you've got to give away 5% of the corpus every year. It's like a minimum pension payment. Yeah. As long as you give away the 5%, to registered charities, the income inside the trust is tax-free. So all you do is you set up the trust just like a self-managed super fund, you put the money in, you invest it, and you make a pension, you, you make a, a, a donation out of it equal to the 5%, and that is a philanthropic trust in its okay. most basic sense. It's just a different, you tick a different box, so discretionary trust, unit trusts, philanthropic trust. Yes, and it's, you know, it's like a self-managed super fund trust deed. It yeah. has got all the right words in it to make sure that um, you follow, you comply with the legal rules, which means it remains tax-free and what you can do with it. So it's and just a different trust deed. That, that's super interesting. And it, it needs to be, you need to contribute to a registered charity so there's not a lot of discretion with, with where, the, where the money goes beyond 
That, oh, but, there, but there are hundreds and thousands of registered charities in Australia. Yeah, yeah. One For example, of, the Angamwadi Project is a registered charity. And, and it, did that come from a... So it, let's talk about that project, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in understanding it. It was something that I, I found sort of doing my homework for today. Um, but even extending from the conversation we've just had, is, is it related? Is it, does it come from a philanthropic trust? It's, uh, so you, many people have heard of Medicine Sans Frontier. Um, Doctors Without Borders is a, a global um, uh, health organisation. And there's another one called Architects Without Frontiers. And they go around and they architects donate their time to help the, the built environment in which poor people reside, to try and lift them. So what the Angamwadi Project does is we raise money here in Australia. We uh, arrange for volunteer architects to go over and live in India for six months. Um, we have two organisations which they work with. One's called uh, Manav Sadhana, which is the um, it's Gandhi's ashram. Um, and there's another one called the Rural Development Trust, which is a Spanish organisation both of those organisations build things in India to help poor people. And so an Anganwadi is a small one-room classroom. And in the slums of India, when parents have to go off to, uh, you know, to many poor and, and demanding occupations, the kids are left kind of unattended or with, you know, family or other things. So they tend to congregate in just an individual's house or room and that's where they spend their time. And so out of that built the Angamwadi where they would actually have a, somebody who would look after the children. But the built environment in which those children live is often terrible. Um, it's a very small room with no facilities. It's excruciatingly hot. Um, and so it's hard for them to learn. So what we do is we send a pair of young architects over. They work with Manav Sadhana and the community to find a space where they can build a small one-room classroom. We, um, one of the strengths of the Yangamori project is the collaboration between the architects and the community to really work out what will work in their environment for their children and their teacher. And then we, uh, we build it. So we've built, I think we're up to about our 19th small classroom that we've built in India. Wow. Um, and uh, we are continuing to do it. So my job through meeting this client of mine, um, I've gone on to the board as the treasurer and uh, just provide some help um, to make that really important work. I, I, I have a very small role um, because it's the, it's the coordinating of the architects and the work on the ground that's the real work, um, but it's very satisfying. Mate, I, I could imagine. Uh, have you been? To the project, have you gone? I, I haven't been. Uh, we we've we take lots of photos. Uh, we've got a you know, there's an Anganwadi Facebook page. There's lots of photos. There's videos. Um, but I haven't I haven't been to India since I've been involved with the Anganwadi project. I had been to India separately, but that was many many moons ago. I, I'm interested in, and I will share a link uh, in the show notes for for this because it is an interesting website. But one thing that I I noticed when I was looking at it were how regional, I, I assume it's regional, the areas, and they're not, they're not areas that I've, I'm familiar with. Uh, look, uh, Rural Development Trust, uh, that, that work is quite regional, but the work we do with Manav Sadhana is in the city slums. Okay. The, video, the videos are pretty, uh, are pretty intense because they use a, a drone to, 
lift up and you look down on on where they're living and then you you know you walk on a journey with them and it's a, just unbelievable that you know we their resilience to just live that way yeah i i can i well i i can't even start to understand but that that's amazing and i i it's that's it's it's interesting that you say you your role isn't isn't large in it but i uh, i guess there's there would be a a collective recognition that the thing wouldn't exist without you there so uh you know a little bit like dean and dean and the encounter with the jv you never know where a conversation can go right especially in this space and i imagine this is a a current client who is very happy with you uh for, for opening this door right look and and that's that's another important thing which is you know we like one of our realizations that we were a service company not a, a technical blabbing company yeah you know <laughs> service was what made the difference and technical knowledge was just our product. Um, we've also been really aware that financial planning is not about the technical details. It's about the relationship that you have, the listening that you do, uh, the empathy that you have, the, the solutions that you provide that don't give, that don't revolve around money. And so when you have that as your focus, it's, it's a very deep journey that you go on um, and really rewarding. Um, and maybe that's not for everybody, but it certainly is for me that um, financial planning for us, and we had this in one of our, you know, in a number of our marketing things, the financial planning journey is about how you feel at the beginning versus how you want to feel at the end. And it's about understanding anxieties and fears and, and aspirational goals. They're all feelings. They're not, that's not a dollar number. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling. And it's how do we how do we get to this other place where you're feeling less anxious, you're feeling more confident, you, you're inspired and, and happy. Uh, and the journey that we go through is the financial planning journey. It's the, it's the understanding the goals and objectives, the fact find, the solution creation, the solution implementation, the solution management. That's the technical piece in the middle. But the important journey is the emotional one. Um, and when you get that right, um, you know, you have a, a very sticky um, and very deep relationships. Um, and, and to be honest, a lot of our, my meetings become much less about what's happening with their finances because we've already organised them. Like their finances are in care and maintenance mode. It's about catching up with them regularly to find out what the new concerns or the new fears are that we can just talk to them about. Must be, must, I, I, I must be liberating, you know, to... Well, it is liber- I, I can say that it is liberating when you when you're very clear on your value proposition, and it's not a it's not a financial it's not a, a percentage on on funds under management from a growth side. It's it takes a lot of pressure off once you you're comfortable to release that notion of you being the money guy, but rather you, you know you set things up and then and then uh, frankly the, the 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 plan shouldn't change too much because a financial plan isn't built for a twelve. 12 months, but the conversations happen much more frequently than that. Um, Paul, I, I'm interested in, uh, just as a closer for, for today, um, uh, well, for, for advisors who are in this space and are interested in talking a little bit further, uh, I, I've noticed that you and Dean are quite active on the social pipes uh, and you've got some initiatives for, for young advisors to, to sort of go out on their own. I don't, I don't really understand the detail, but would you like to maybe share that for anyone listening who's, who's keen to learn more? Sure. Um, so 
through Dean and my personal experience, uh, we, we had this conundrum of how do young people transition from employee to business owner without getting ripped off or completely obliterated emotionally on the way. Um, and so, you know, it started out with Dean and I. We started a business together 50-50. There was no buying in. Um, you know, anybody who knows the story of, of Ben Nash, um, Dean was Ben's coach for a couple of years and, you know, one of the coaching issues was about Ben's uh, journey to try and own part of the business that he was then in and having a disappointing outing and then going, well, ha-ha, we come here, we've got to pivot and um, uh, how could we help Ben start a business? And so that was the first step into that thing and then we go actually this is probably something which is more valuable to more people and so we've gradually um, offered and built a service around helping young people particularly start a financial planning business um, and that's around and so Dean runs uh, you know through XY Advisor he's got a channel in there he's also runs um, uh, a webinar where he kind of talks a little bit about the service um, which is really just for people to get a little bit of an idea of, of what's going on. He then runs a masterclass, which is six courses, which is really about, um, so put yourself in the mindset of the young person. I'm thinking about starting my own business um, and I'm thinking about what my options are. So I watch the webinar and I can see what Dean offers. So then one of the things that Dean offers is a six-week webinar uh, or masterclass where you go through all the major steps of planning to start your business. So it's about um, thinking about your, you know, what's your niche client? Um, who do I need around me? What's my service offering? Uh, so there's six classes so that once you've gone through the classes, you've got a, a, you are ready to start your business if that's what you decide you want to do. Um, the next phase is, is that one of the big things we learned is that when you start a business as a one-man band, um, there are so many things that you have to do um, between trying to get your clients, trying to find an outsource providers, tech providers, bookkeepers, accountants. Um, how do I run a business? Because the young advisors have been in an employment situation and it's a very different situation to running a business. So we offer a service where we will run your business for you. We will take care of all of those things. We won't do all of the doing, but we'll find the solutions for you. We'll help you with lots of the running of your business. Point being, you can then focus on the most important thing, which is bringing on your clients and servicing them as well as possible and as quickly as possible. Because it's a bit like a race to get to scale as quick as you can so that you can then survive. The worst thing is to progress too slowly and you die of um, kind of atrophy. So if we can stop you making mistakes by focusing on the business side of it, we stop you making mistakes by employing the wrong technology or things that don't work, we can help you with an operating rhythm to run your business. So we will sit in with the new advisor every week and we, we have a management meeting where Dean sits on the board and helps run the business while, while the advisor is off maximising their marketing and their, their onboarding and their servicing of clients so they get to scale. And then once they get to a certain scale, we, we sell out. So that's the offering that we're doing. Um, and 
Uh, it's worked. You know, we've got the examples of, well, our business is, is quite successful. We've got Ben Nash who came on and did that. We've got Fox and Hare who are on that journey with us. As I said, we've got some of these other partnership businesses that we're running. And so Dean's passion and skill is helping startup financial planning businesses reach success and scale as quickly as possible. Is there, a, is there an, a stage, like if you're listening to what you've just said and going, that sounds amazing, but I'm not sure if I'm ready to go into that. Is there, a, what, what would your response be? Is there an age or an experience or? Again, it's, um, uh, it's each person to their own. So you, what I recommend you do is, is, list, is contact Dean and either attend or listen to the webinar, which is about mindset and are you ready kind of thing. What are the challenges that business owners face and are you ready for that? And if you pass that gate, then you go into the, I'm going to plan my business. And on that journey of planning your business, you will realise more and more about whether you're ready or not, whether this is the challenge for you, whether you have got a clear enough niche that you're going to focus on, whether you've got a clear enough marketing strategy, whether you've got capital, are you in a financial position to survive the startup phase? You'll answer all of those questions. And even if you get to the end of that masterclass, what you'll decide is either this journey is not for me at all. I don't want to be a business owner. Or this journey is for me, but I don't have all the building blocks in place yet. Um, there are two or three areas I've got to go and focus on. Either it's my own financial position that I've got to get ready or my marketing strategy isn't quite nailing it yet or some part of that six-part course is not ready to go. So it's I want to do it, but I'm not yet ready. I'm going to go away, do the work, and I'll be ready to start in 6, 12, 18 months, however long time. Or the final one is you get through that course and you go, I've nailed it, I am ready, I'm going to go. And at that point, the decision is you don't have to do it with us. Um, the decision is I'm ready to go and I'm going to do it on my own or I'm ready to go and I'd like to do it with Dean. Paul, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite.